listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks to everyone for joining us for episode 317. We're getting a little north of 300. Yeah. And you know what else? We got a special guest today. We do have a special guest. We never have special guests on this show. Well, well, so this is the first time we're going to have it for First Friday Q&A. That's true. Yep. Welcome aboard, Jordan Driscoll. Hello, sir. <laughs> Glad to be here. So if you haven't listened to Jordan's podcast, it is one of my personal favorite podcasts. It's on my own personal playlist. You say this every show, by the way. <laughs> I love his podcast. Go listen to Oil Gas Geopolitics. It's only a little bit about geopolitics, but it's a lot of history woven together in a story in a way that only Jordan can. And he makes you want to hear the end. It's almost like a true crime drama. Like it's all woven together and you want to find out what's going to happen. So go go and listen. And if you haven't listened to it, he also likes to drink coffee. I so do. You will hear, you'll hear a little bit of that. <laughs> a little bit of that. So before we get into the questions, let's hit the reviews. We've got a five star. I found the show a few years ago when I was looking for a quicker way to stay up to date with what is happening in the energy industry. Like many other listeners, my time is valuable. and I'm always considering what to do during my commute from home to the office or when visiting a customer. Mark and Paige became my companions, not only when I was driving, but also during my workouts. I sat and joined one of their old mixers to see if it could add value to my professional life, and the results were incredible. I can't count how many people I met, and my professional network has evolved significantly since then. I met Mark LaCour and Michael O'Sullivan, and we became friends. From time to time, I meet them for quick lunch and learning sessions. During that short time, I've had opportunities to become a business partner, and I continue to learn from them and from the show. For those reading reviews to access its worthiness, go ahead and subscribe right now. Damn it. Actually, I threw that in. I also consider exploring other shows like Oil & Gas Ingenuity, Oil & Gas Digital Doers, and Oil & Gas Upstream. Great job, Mark and Paige. This is from Daniel Gomez from the United States. Daniel. You obviously we, know this person, right? Yeah. When Daniel worked at Dell, he sponsored the bar for our OGG and Unscripted. Remember the Dell logo on the bar? No, I yeah. don't actually. <laughs> so, so Daniel's a great guy. Daniel, thanks for the review. Next time, it doesn't have to be that long, but really appreciate it. If you want to be like Daniel and get your review read and get a big shout out, it's a really easy thing to do. Let's go in the show notes. There's a link. They can leave a review if you want to try to remember it. It's lovethepodcast.com forward slash OGTW. All right. Well, let's get into the questions. As always, we start off with Ludwig. Who did invent the fracking? Just asking. Wasn't that George Mitchell? So it was a combination thing. So the one thing that you have to understand is that it's a combination of two different technologies. Right. It's an old technology, fracking, which Shell invented in the 40s. In the 40s, California was having a major water shortage for agriculture. And so what Shell did is invent a technique to go into water wells and fracture the rock so more water could flow, right? Mm -hmm. So that was invented in the 40s. What Mitchell invented and several other people helped him do is take another technology called horizontal drilling. Ah, uh, okay. Up, and combine that with the old technology, hydraulic fracking, and you get what we call fracking today. And if you don't understand the technique, in the old days, they would drill multiple vertical wells those vertical wells went through a lot of stuff, and only a short length of that well went through what we call the pay zone or the recoverable reservoirs. So you had to have multiple wells in order to get a decent amount of extraction. Now what we do is we drill vertical well, and when we hit that pay zone or that reservoir, we turn the drill bit sideways, and we stay in that reservoir so the entire or the majority of the length of that 
horizontal well is able to recover hydrocarbons and we frack the rock and we recover the hydrocarbons. So there you go, Luthwick. It's a combination of old technology, new technology, and it's something that's basically revolutionized the industry. And Luthwick, the other thing is that geology is not unique to the United States. That fracking geology is all over the world. It's just the rest of the world hasn't developed the infrastructure yet to be able to get to those hydrocarbons, extract them with hydraulic fracking, and move them to market. So this is one of the reasons why I'm saying that the sun will run out of hydrogen before the world will run out of hydrocarbons, is we barely scratched the surface of the recoverable reservoirs using a technique like horizontal fracking. Yep. And also, I'm just glad to hear from Ludwig again, because I think he writes to me once a week on my show. He's my pen pal. Now, Paige, this next one, we may not want to read. I put this in here. Um, it's kind of depressing. Well, I put this in here because I get hundreds of these. And so, people, when you send this in to me, we're not going to put them in the show notes anymore. It's, But I do want to let the people know that have asked me hundreds of times, one of the questions that you don't ask. And this is from Dennis Davis. Basically, he starts off saying, I'm sorry for the inconvenience. I'm a certified advanced scaffolding inspector, supervisor, rigor, safety officer, over 20 years of experience, and he lists all his certs. He has an international passport. He also has international certifications. He has been cleared to not be a terrorist. Please, sir, if you have any opportunity or link that can give me a chance, please help me. It's been four and a half years without a job. I'm getting depressed. Yeah. Please help me for me and my family. Thank you for your audience and understanding. If anybody needs a scaffolding rigger, let me know. It looks like this guy can travel without a visa. It looks like he has a ton of experience. It looks like he's in the UK yeah. as well. My heart goes out to these people, right? But people, I can't help everybody find a job. However, if in my audience, I mean, out there in the audience needs a rigger or needs a scaffolding expert with a good, strong safety record, we're going to go ahead and put David's contact in the show notes so that you can reach out to him directly. But people that are listening, we can't help everybody find a job. I wish I could. From the bottom of my It'd heart, it'd probably I wish be I better could. if just people reach out to you because if we put his information out there, he's going to get a bunch of spam. You know what? You're right, Dennis. I'm not going to put your information in the show notes. If anybody can help Dennis with a job, reach out to me directly, and I will then connect you with Dennis. All right. So Jay Simpson writes in, CEO of Sugartown Smoke Specialties. Ooh, that sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I love the show. Very informative. Why are natural gas prices so low? They used to mimic oil, respectively. Will they increase over the next couple of months? Just curious about your thoughts on this. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, so Jay, for the longest time, the price of nat gas was directly connected to the price of crude oil. That is no longer the case because the markets have varied so much. Now, natural gas has its own market dynamics and its supply and demand. Right now, you're seeing both crude and natural gas go up, which you're seeing is crude prices going up much faster than natural gas. That's because there's a lack of supply for crude and the supply for natural gas is being increased, although we're still in a global energy shortage. So that's why you see that disconnect there. That disconnect is going to be expanded once a lot of LNG infrastructure gets built, not just the exporting of LNG, but the infrastructure needed to import and regasify LNG. Then you can see a third split between crude prices, natural gas prices, and LNG prices. If you're one of those people that trade the market, it's going to get more complex instead of less complex. However, we have a partner called Energy Rogue. And if you want access to that data, it comes out every Sunday on our Sunday update, totally free of charge. You just got to sign up for the newsletter. All right. Since you speak Portuguese, you get this next one. <laughs> I'm not, I don't know how to say half of that crap. It's Spanish, Paige. Uh, whatever. <laughs> I can't do that either. Okay. So basically, I can't do either. So basically, Maximilius, love the name, Maximilius Damus, tells me, I wonder why you pronounce the Venezuelan country Petrovesa 
instead of the right way, which is Petavesa. <laughs> Same way he's making fun of me saying Pemex. He says I say Petromex, which actually I don't actually do say Pemex. I've never so, heard you say Petromex. Yeah. But anyway, Maximilian, the reason I mispronounce Petrovesa is one thing. My native language is English. And I'm actually horrible at Spanish because I learned Brazilian Portuguese. Yeah. And there's a lot of words in those two languages that sound exactly the same to me, but mean something completely different. For example, as a male, if I say thank you in Brazilian Portuguese, I say obrigado, which in Spanish sounds like attorney. So that's fair. Yeah. In my trying to learn Spanish, but because I learned Brazilian Portuguese first, I've got to a point where I can't hardly pronounce any Spanish names properly, so I am so sorry. I mean no disrespect. I do know the name is not Petro Vesa, but it's just how it comes out when I'm not paying attention. But, Maximilia, thank you so much for being a listener for the show and correcting me. Which, by the way, listeners, if I make a mistake, let me know about it. Yeah, do that. All I got going for me is French, man. (laughs) I mean, I took Latin in high school, which has been very useful. Oh, yeah. Yes, so deeply, dead. And, deeply. And deeply then dead. two years of Spanish taught to me by a – I went to school in Georgia, and two years of Spanish with someone that has a deep southern accent <laughs> means I can't speak exactly. Spanish. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Next one is from Marcelo. Hi, longtime listener. No question, just to share a piece of information regarding maximizing gas consumption on site. In Argentina, is currently being tested fracking equipment fueled by gas. Best, great show. Marcelo, your Argentinian correspondent. Marcelo, I got this love affair with Malbacs. You know that it comes from your part of the world. Yeah, you know, Chevron's been in Argentina for a long time doing fracking, and they are using basically well gas that you hear a lot going on here to run gen sets. The places where they frack in Argentina, the infrastructure to bring utility power is just non-existent. In fact, a lot of the basic infrastructure like roads and pipeline is also non-existent. It is cool to hear that they're actually using well gas to run well sites. That's one of the ways that you lessen the impact to the environment. And I'm glad we have a correspondent in Argentina. I would actually love if a group of people in Argentina would like to do a mixer there. I would absolutely you love You just want to go for the wine. It's one of the most beautiful countries I've ever seen in the entire world. And the people there are fantastic. And yes, the wine is great. <laughs> now, what you don't want to do is start asking them who has the best beef. Is it them or the Brazilians? That's like starting civil war. I feel like <laughs> they're should, both good. I feel like I should do that just so they'll feed me. No, no, they won't feed you. Oh, okay. Two things you don't do: you don't talk about the beef, and don't talk about ownership of the Falklands. Yep. <laughs> well, we could go off on that one, right? <laughs> All right. So, on another note, Stefan Johnson writes in: Hi, Mark and Page. Absolutely love the podcast and listen every week for some time now. Have a question about the Bakken and the new drilling technique. As I understand, it won't be necessary to frack the Bakken outer area if this works. Turning Tier 2 into Tier 1 and requiring smaller capex, could you please give your thoughts on this and what to look for and what this could mean for producers in that area? Okay, so one of the problems, we're going to get kind of deep here. One of the problems in the Bakken is that they use much longer lateral sections and then the drill bit itself is going through much higher pressurized formations. So the circulation rate is harder, especially for things like high-density drilling butts. I'm trying not to go deep too deep here. And so one of the things they're figuring out doing is they're doing something called a three-string design. And that means it's basically a multi-well drill pad, which is very common in other formations. But what they do is they put two of the wells closer together than the third one. And that third one is used to help mitigate that loss of circulation. And so what all that means in English is that you're able now with this technique that I believe Slumberjay invented, you're able to go into the Bakken and go to 
poorer or less recoverable areas of the reservoir and actually recover like its primary or tier one reserves. Mm. It's been proven. It works. The only thing, Stefan, that I don't have long-term information on is the first batch of data I saw on this, the decline weight for the wells that are drilled that way are dramatically shorter than the other way. So somebody's going to have to do a balance financially on if we get more production by drilling wells this way in the Bakken, but the decline is quicker, does it make financial sense to use this technique? And if anybody can figure this out, it's going to be Schlumberger. So just pay attention to what's going on. They'll get it down to a science. Yep. Next one is from Rudolph Huber. Hi, Mark and Paige. Mark said on the last podcast, when did you receive this? So which podcast was this, do you think? This was like two podcasts. Oh, okay, all right, all right, cool. Because he actually sent it to me in Messenger. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see that. Okay. Yeah. Mark said on the last podcast that wind power is not subsidized in Texas. I am European, so I might be misinformed, but that seems hard to believe. Here in Europe, every single wind farm I know would instantly go bust without subsidies. What's different in Texas? Also, I'm pretty sure that wind power gets preferential grid access in Texas as it does in Austria. Okay. So, I mean, first off, I think everything in Europe is subsidized by the government on some level, right? Right. It it actually really is. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, a couple things, real. So, wind power in Texas is subsidized by the federal government. The state of Texas does it a little bit differently. They do this with everything from electric cars like Tesla to things like wind and solar. And they basically say, look, we understand that you have a disadvantage because it's a new technology. We also understand you have federal money to help compete, but it's not enough. We're going to give you X amount of time to receive state help and federal help. And after X amount of time, the state help will go away. The federal help may or may not be there. We have no control over it. And you have to compete in the fair market. So here in Texas, they gave Tesla seven years to actually build out a retail infrastructure. So Tesla actually doesn't have dealerships. like They do now. Well, they do now in Texas yeah. because the time ran out. Right. And they had to open dealerships, right? So Tesla now has to compete just like Ford Chevy does. So once again, the federal government subsidizes wind in Texas, but the state government, that those subsidies have run out. And the only thing they get is they get tax breaks. It's chapter 312 and chapter 313 property tax breaks. It's the same tax breaks that you get any type of energy production, whether you're drilling for natural gas, for oil, where you're doing geothermal, whatever, you get a break on the actual property tax. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the grid itself, the Texas grid is the only grid in the U.S. that's not connected to the rest of the country. That may change, and it may actually change in some bizarre way because wind. Because in the middle of the day, we generate so much wind energy, we have nowhere to put it. We can't use it all. Now, toward the evening when the wind dies down, the demand for electricity starts going up most of the year because of the needs for air conditioning. So the demand for electricity doesn't match the electricity output generated by wind. We have a part of the day where we have a lot of wind energy that we can't – nothing to do with it because right. not enough big yeah. demand. And then right when the wind dies down is when the electrical demand goes up. So one of the things that Texas is doing is looking at connecting to the rest of the country's grid, not because we need their electricity, but so we can sell our excess wind electricity. So technically, Rudolph, wind is – subsidized by the federal government in Texas, but as of today, 2023, it's not subsidized by the state other than the tax breaks for the property tax, which is the exact same tax breaks any other energy producer gets. All right. Next one's from Sarah Jackman, student at U of H. This is my favorite podcast of all time. A really great job, guys. I'm studying mechanical engineering, and my dad says that I'm crazy to want to work in oil and gas because it discriminates against women. 
Paige, is that true in our country? And what advice or encouragement would you give women considering a career in oil and gas? I'm not sure what generation your dad's from, but it's not like that anymore. When I started out, I really didn't have much of an issue, though I did work in an office job. But I mean, obviously, expect to work hard. Be flexible and open to new experiences because there are many facets to this industry with opportunity. Patience and persistence is also key to advancement into the right career path. So I hope that helps. And I would just say the days of that sort of discrimination, that blatantly, yeah. long past. But it must be said that on this episode, we do require Paige to phone in from the kitchen. Uh, she, can't, she can't actually sit at the table with us. Certainly, barefoot. certainly. But I mean, other than that, no, it's nothing to it. Yeah. Y'all just date yourself because half of our younger audience is going, what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> Google it. Yeah, Google it. Um, I'll say this much. I know this from personal experience. For a long time, the largest U.S. super major, I'm not going to mention names, Exxon. <laughs> Subtle. <laughs> Almost all of their engineers were male and from a select group of universities. And at some point in the 80s, the late 80s, they had a shortage of engineers and they had no choice but to hire women. And yeah. literally overnight, the entire company took a deep breath and went, they're as good as the men. In fact, a lot of times they're better. Yeah. So it flipped literally overnight. What's her name? Sarah. Sarah. So literally Sarah, I mean, even some of the largest most old-fashioned companies in this industry, there's no prejudice anymore. They look at you for your strengths, not for your sex. So tell your dad, you know, thank you for the advice, but he's just wrong. <laughs> All right. Wesley Martin, construction superintendent at GQ Builders, writes in, what are the differences between offshore and onshore drilling operations? And thanks for producing such a wonderful podcast. I'm not even close to working in the industry yet, but I listen to you every lunch break. Well, first off, there's this thing called water, <laughs> which is kind of wet. <laughs> yeah. So, Wesley, besides water, it's literally two radically different business oh, models. Yeah. yeah. So, offshore is all about project management and your ability to manage your finances and stay on budget and on time. When they do an offshore project, Wesley, they know 10 years ahead of time, not only how much money that project will make when it goes to production, but what their margins will be. They know mm -hmm. to the penny. And as they build out the project, so they have to secure the lease, they have to buy the lease or rent the lease, basically, or lease the lease. They have to rent a drill ship. They have to drill. Once they drill and they strike pay dirt, they have to go in production. They have to build a production platform. And I know I'm going to get it's hate mail. so much longer. Here, yeah. But every one of these steps has to hit a certain budget in a certain time. And if it does, the project is profitable. If they slip, then the project isn't profitable. And for something like an ultra deep water project, between the time they start and the time they decommission those wells, that might be an 80 to $100 billion in CapEx investment, right? On land, it's the opposite. It's sort of like the way Toyota builds Celicas. Or they don't build Celicas, they're Camrys, right? <laughs> don't it's, age yourself. Yeah. <laughs> nice job there. Yeah. On land, it's like a factory. How efficient can we do everything? How quickly can we punch a hole in the ground and move to the next? It's almost like an assembly line. Same way with supply chain. And the finances aren't dictated ahead of time. The finances are dictated post-completion when the well actually starts producing and the decline curves between the two are radically different. Offshore tends to be conventional reservoirs. And there's reservoirs in the Gulf of Mexico and in the North Sea that are 100 years old. They're still yeah. producing mm -hmm. hundreds of millions of barrels a day. Right. On land, within five years, that well has declined from you know a few thousand barrels a day to 10 or 20. Right. So it's just it's two radically different techniques and there's water involved. In yeah, sure. yeah. Well, whenever and, I go ahead, Jordan. Oh, I was just going to say. I mean, and and on top of you know the aquatic element, 
<laughs> there's also a huge amount of additional variables. Right. You know, weather becomes a much more significant factor, mm-hmm. among other things, that just compounds that whole process. I mean, any time you have to go out to sea to do a thing, yeah. I mean, even if it's 10 feet off the coast or yeah. several miles the complexity ratchets up exponentially. Oh, for sure. It's funny because when I actually started an offshore regulatory. So when I, you know, moved over to onshore stuff, no hate mail people, but I kind of had to dumb down for it. It's so much easier. You know, I didn't know things like you could produce an open hole, you know, and all that stuff. I was like, hey, why is this so, it's already done. We've already drilled it and moved on to the next one. Where's my permit for that? It was just so much quicker and it's a lot faster, so. Yep. Next one. All right. Elizabeth Blankley, outside sales at Herc Reynolds. If there's anything like oil and gas royalty, it's you two. I believe our entire company listens to you and also several other of the OGGM podcasts. Here's my question. What messages and selling points resonate most with decision makers in the oil and gas industry? Jordan, what a great time for you to accidentally be on. I mean, what great time. You want to take first stab at that? You want me to take first stab at that? I'll, I'll let you take first stab at that. All right. So decision makers. So let me back you up, Elizabeth. Probably because it looks like you're selling equipment rental. You probably really think you have decision makers, and that's the guy in the shed, right? The guy in the work trailer that you're bringing donuts to and beef jerky, and you're trying to make sure that he's renting your backhoes and your forklifts and all that sort of stuff. The truth in this industry, there's really not that many decision makers anymore here in Europe. It's a decision-making team. So when you look at that decision-making team, what really resonates with them from a selling point is it's not cost. Now, supply chain is going to make you think it's cost because that's their job. No matter what you sell them, they're going to beat you up on price and they're going to tell you that you're too expensive. But in this industry, a couple of things. Number one is can you deliver on time? Production in the upstream can be millions of dollars a day in lost revenue if the pump breaks and you can't get that pump back out there and get the production back up. The other big thing is safety. Now, I don't mean the HSE guy that checks the box. I mean that in this industry, in everybody's heart, they truly want their people to go home safe every night. And so that's one of the things you may run into, Elizabeth, when you bring something new to the industry and they'll go, uh, I don't really want to try it. It's not that they're old fashioned and they don't want to change. What you don't realize, Elizabeth, is that you're bringing something new that's a risk. And whatever they're doing now, and whether it's on paper or you know some 1947 forklift or whatever, you're trying to bring in something new, that old thing, if nothing is blown up, nothing's leaked, nobody's gotten hurt, they don't want to change it because it's a risk. So that's probably two big things is we're very risk adverse, especially around safety. And then the cost of what you're doing or what you're selling isn't as important as your ability to help solve a business problem. So I would tack on to that. One, that's all correct. I'll take a different twist on it, though. The overall macroeconomics are a factor. What I've seen in my day job, which is VP of a sales and marketing group for oil and gas accounting, which is a little different, but the fundamentals are the same. You're still selling to somebody in the oil and gas industry of one form or another. But what I found is when the price of oil is up, when the money's rolling in, what you want to do, what's going to win is like Mark said, it's not the price. It's what are you going to do to make my job easier? What can you give me that's going to make this all simpler and easier? And and people will spend the money when you make their life easier (laughs) until the price of oil goes down. Then it's I don't care how much harder this is for me, what can save me money on my GNA line, right? Yeah. And so it depends on where the market's at and what that approach is for most of those conversations. Yeah, it's true. It's true for the entire industry. The other thing to remember, and especially since you've written equipment, keep this in the back of your head. Other than the pandemic, anytime when upstream is hurting, so when the price of crude oil tanks and everybody's laying people off, 
the downstream guys are on fire, right? Because their raw feedstock has been cut, but they're not reduced. Their margins go through the roof. So when crude price is low, think about it. Do you pay less for your car tires or your soccer balls or your nylon shirts or your motor oil? No. Mm-mm. So anytime, Lizzie, that downstream tanks and you're, everybody in your company saying the oil industry has crashed, go to the refineries and petrochemical plants. They need your help because they're spending money like crazy. That's a really good thing for a salesperson to remember. Oh, my sister works there at Herc. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, my youngest. Yeah, Chantel. Okay, so. uh, what's her name? Elizabeth, tell Chantel hi. Yeah. <laughs> and also, get him to listen to my show, obviously. <laughs> All right. Next up, Catherine Delfino, Marketing Director at Teledyne Technologies. Marketing page, I've been a listener for years, and I love your podcast. I have two questions. Number one, how could sustainability and renewable energy impact marketing messages for oil and gas? Let's start with that one. Boy, what a question, Catherine. How could sustainability and renewable energy impact marketing messages for oil and gas? A couple of ways. So probably about 10 years ago, eight or 10 years ago, you had a lot of the oil and gas industry basically greenwashing, and they won't admit it, but you know, BP switching to beyond petroleum, that was greenwashing. They really, really didn't have look at renewables as anything as maybe little minor irritating competition. Fast forward to now, and not only are they not looking at it that way, not only are they not greenwashing, but they're looking at renewables as, is this another line of business? Can I make money off of this? And they've made some bad decisions, and however, they've also made some good decisions. So what I'm starting to see is a lot of large companies, especially in large service companies, talk about their low-carbon solutions. I, we talked about Slumberjay earlier. I learned this just the other day. Slumberjay is working on a whole business unit for low-carbon concrete, not cement for the well, but concrete like you pour for building slabs and roadways, right? So what's happened is the oil and gas industry is using the environmental friendliness and the ability to have a less of an impact to where you work in your local communities as a way to help market what they do. So that was kind of unexpected. But that's one of the ways I'm seeing that the renewable energy impact marketing message for oil and gas. Comments, Jordan? I mean, it kind of strikes me as you and I talked about this this morning, actually, over my morning cup of coffee. It's the same vein as, in my opinion, ESG was a mm. couple of years yep. ago. Remember, like you and I talked about that, that it became a big thing and it was a buzzword. And it was kind of the whole greenwashing thing. It was, oh, yeah, we're ESG compliant. We're doing this, that, and the other. And then it fell off and it became more of a thing. And now they're trying to put some structure and metrics around it to make it actually mean something. I think it's in that same vein, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. What's the next one, Paige? The next question she had was, how is digital marketing and social media being utilized in the oil and gas industry? Not well, enough. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this, though. I was dumbfounded. This was March of this year when Shell was looking for hire four people to run their TikTok account. Uh-huh. I don't know what came out. I haven't looked. But when I look at all that, tells it. you something right there. Well, right. I'm just not over. I'm not on TikTok. I haven't seen you anything. Haven't seen any Shell? Uh-uh. And then Chevron actually hired a team of content creators. So not PR people, but social content creators. Yeah. So I think we're dipping our toe into the water. There is a lot of content on social media for the oil and gas industry, but quite honestly, it's canned messaging for marketing that's very safe. They're not doing the risky stuff they really need to do to show how cool an industry is to attract younger people. And I hope it's coming. But I do know one company that is getting ready to kill it on TikTok, and that's us, OGG and Pace. Oh, yeah, totally. And then on social media, I think we're doing an excellent job. Why are y'all making faces? I I mean, I was giving you an amen. That was The congregation was with you. All right, next question is from Jonathan Welch, student at New South Warren High School. Ooh, we have high schoolers. Listen, that's fantastic. 
I started listening to the podcast because of an assignment in my physics class, and it's so good that I never quit listening. (laughs) (laughs) I know this is a beginner question, but what are the main segments and operations within the oil and gas industry? And did I hear properly that you're starting a new oil and gas podcast for ninth graders? Regardless, just love this pod. Yep, Jonathan, the ninth grader podcast is absolutely happening. About a month, we should get that thing up and rolling. It's going to be a fantastic show. Which, by the way, I've gotten a ton of interest from other companies wanting to help. We're basically help educating our world's young people. So if you're listening to this and you want to help us educate our world's young people in the reality of energy, let me know. I'd love to help you be a part of this. As far as the segments, it's pretty simple stuff. A lot of people get this confused. Yep. You have the upstream part of the industry, which is also called E&P or exploration production. That is the people and the companies that get the oil out of the ground. Very simple. Upstream is getting the oil out of the ground. You have the midstream segment. Midstream is moving those hydrocarbons, crude and natural gas. That's everything from pipeline to super tankers to rail to trucks is midstream. Then you have the downstream part of the industry, and the downstream part of the industry turns hydrocarbons into products you can sell. So it's not just things like refineries that turn into fuels, but it's the plastics and the adhesives and the nylon that makes fertilizer, fertilizer, all that is downstream. Then... You have a group of companies that does all the work that nobody else wants to do. It's called the service companies. <laughs> so when you look at, say, Chevron's drilling well in the Gulf of Mexico, there's only one Chevron employee on that rig, and they call him the company man. That rig is – Chevron doesn't own any rigs. That rig is rented from somebody like TransOcean, and it's crewed with a crew from somebody like Baker Hughes or Slumbergate because they're the service company. So upstream, midstream, downstream, and service. Hope that helps you, Jonathan. And thanks for being a listener. Yeah. Next up, Sherry Hildebrand. BDR at Siemens. Hey, guys, enormous fan of the show. My only suggestion is would be really cool if you could keep up with the weekly releases. I'd be happy to volunteer a little bit of administrative time a week if that would help. That was sweet. Yeah. Question, what happened to your pitch podcast and is that still around? And Paige, what color is the lipstick, the red lipstick you always wear? It's called NYX Liquid Suede and the flavor of kitten heels. <laughs> I love it. She's, <laughs> she's known for that red lipstick. It looks great on you. Thanks. Yes, Sherry, the Pitch Podcast is still around. You're a BDR, so you're a business development representative, which I think you're probably asking to see if you could Pitch Podcast can help sell your company's stuff. And yes, it can. The Pitch Podcast started off as a joke. So literally every day, companies reach out and want to pay to have their chief revenue officer or their CEO or a president on our podcast as a guest. And we don't do that because we think it violates our journalistic integrity. If you pay to come on the show, you're going to want a favor. And if what you're saying is not true, we, you would think that we wouldn't expose that or we would say you're great or whatever. Unfortunately, there's a lot of companies in our industry right now that if you pay them $10,000, $30,000, they'll do a two-page full editorial about you and your product and how great it is, and we just think that's Well, wrong. we got – you remember I found an article that ended up being clickbait last episode. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. same kind of thing. Yeah. We don't so, be forward, you know? Yeah, so I was sitting around some of my buddies that actually work in procurement at Exxon, and I was talking about this problem we have of people wanting to pay for their people to come on the show, and as a joke, just to my friends, I said, hey, maybe we should start a podcast where we let people pay to come on. And they stopped and they go, Mark, you should do it. And I go, what? They go, you know how valuable it would be to us in procurement to see a salesperson pitch their product or service, but we don't have to talk to them or give them our business card. And then if we like it, then we can reach out to them. And that's how the Pitch Podcast was born. So it's still around. One thing that's different about the Pitch Podcast is you actually have to pay to go on it since it doesn't have a sponsor. If you think about the way the business set up for Pitch Podcast, it can't have a sponsor. Yeah. And there's bias. Yeah. So if you come on, you pay $300, and that covers our cost of editing and our host and everything else. 
And then my host, Warren Speedwack, is an incredible sales guy. And so he will let you go through your sales spiel, but he's going to challenge you. And if you do something that he doesn't think is legit, he will call bullshit. And let me tell you what, Sherry, what's really cool about that show. About 70% of the guests on that show have people reach out to them and they start a sales cycle with them. So what started out as a joke actually turned into a legitimately useful podcast on our network. If you want more information, Sherry, just go to the OGN website. Everything is there. Yep. You know, it's funny about that starting out as a joke because we're talking about shooting that video for my show yeah. about getting paid off to say things on a podcast <laughs> and the journalistic integrity that we <laughs> – yeah. Fits right in. It does. Okay, Jimbo Nettles works at his own, he owns the place, and the company is his. What should I do if I find black goose seeping up on my property? Go look up Beverly Beverly Hills. Hills. Yep, go look up (laughs) Beverly Hillbillies, Jinx. (laughs) (laughs) And I've just lost 97% of our audience. This Jed was a, Clampett. Yeah, this was a series that was must have been in the 60s, maybe 70s. I'm not quite sure. I, it had there, to be 60. I mean, it started off black and, black and, and white. I'm right. millennial yeah. and I know about this. Right, exactly. Yeah, and so what it was about is this poor farmer actually in the Bakken area, right? So that Pennsylvania area right there that was hunting for food for his family, and he shot a rabbit and he missed it. I will sing the song right yeah. now. <laughs> and up came Bubbling Crude. And so he went from being poor to a millionaire, and they moved to Beverly Hills. And that's the context of the series. It was actually truly funny for its time but seriously if you really do have black goose seeping up it's probably something called a seep yeah which is how oil was discovered up until recently the rockefellers when they started standard oil had hundreds of maps of paper maps of seeps all over the u.s that's why they knew that hydrocarbons were abundant and they were the only ones that gathered these maps and so they knew that if they drilled where their seep was that they would hit oil which is actually what happened with the first oil drilled in pennsylvania that was a seep and that goes back not only did the American Indians use those seeps for medicinal purposes, but the very first oil well was drilled before Christ. It was drilled at 800. No, I'm sorry. Right after Christ, 800 AD, it was drilled by the Chinese. Oh, now we're bringing Jesus into this? Yeah. But listen to this. <laughs> it was drilled with bamboo stems for drill stem and flint rock drill bits. They drilled 400 feet, right, using manpower, wow. and they hit oil. So the black goo, if you're being very serious here, Jimbo, if it is, it's a seep, which may mean you have hydrocarbons very right close below the surface of your property. Right on. Which is ideal to make money. Yeah, exactly. Next one is from Stuart Wilson. Hey, we know him. No, Stuart Will. Yeah. Business unit leader at Seal for Life Industries. Mark Page, as you know, I'm a big fan and love what you do for the industry. There have been a number of large-scale midstream acquisitions in North America this year. What is that telling us? Best regards to both of you, and hopefully see you soon at one of the mixers. Stuart. So, Stuart, I don't have a crystal ball. Do not invest any money in what I'm getting ready to tell you. This is what I think. And I actually called this a couple of years ago. You're seeing the nat gas distribution market in the U.S. mature. And anytime a market matures, the bigger players that are in a better financial position snatch up the smaller players that are in not such a good financial position. And the reason that's happening is because the players themselves in the investment community see a huge future for natural gas, not just here in the U.S., but taking the gases here in the U.S. and exporting all around the world for LNG. And the only way that you can export LNG is you have to move that gas in LNG facility. And the best, cheapest, most environmentally responsible way to move that gas is in, guess what, the pipeline. So I think it's just a maturing of the market, Stuart. From y'all's business, I think you're going to see a lot more big players and a lot less little players. And I think it's going to take about a decade. So it's not going to happen in the next week or two. But I think in the next 10 years, you can see less and less smaller players. You're going to end up with a handful of big players. So I know for a fact y'all are already doing business with the big players. I'm telling you, Stuart, keep them happy. Yeah. Just keep them happy. <laughs> Final one. Okay, so this one, it seems like this guy has written in before. Oh, HK writes in all the time. Okay, that's yeah. why I looked familiar. 
HK Landry, who is a follower, why is your podcast playback link at the end of the internet page? First off, dude, you're showing your age. How many new listeners give up on the link to the podcast because they can't find it at the end of the web page? Don't quit the links to the news, but you may consider putting the playback link at the top of the page. The links to the news items that you present are very important. Do not quit listening to the links. We haven't stopped. You're just using the internet instead of the a native podcasting so HK, app. What's happening is you're actually listening to us on the actual internet, probably on your desktop. You're actually going to the website, the allaguestthisweek.com website. 99.3% of our listeners listen to it on mobile. So if you have an iPhone or Android phone, there's an app. If you have an Apple phone, it's a purple app, and it's literally called Podcast. Open it up, type in Oil and Gas this week. It will then show you the same podcast you're listening to on your desktop. All you do is quick click follow, and it will automatically, every time we release a new episode, push it out. This means you don't have to go to the website to see if we release a new episode. They'll automatically be there on your phone. Now we do have a new website, and it's being revamped, and you can listen at OGGN.com, but I wouldn't recommend listening Well, I mean, HK, if you want to listen to a desktop, that's great, but the one advantage of a podcast is you can listen to it while you're doing something else, and you don't have to be chained to your desk. But that's why you see the player at the bottom of the webpage, HK. You're right, and it probably should be at the top, but almost none of our listeners listen to it from the webpage. So that's the way the webpage is designed, and it's really not worth our time to redesign it. Right, exactly. But we appreciate you being a listener, and I really appreciate yeah. you writing it on a regular basis. We sure do. And you do you. You listen to it however you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I brought up going directly to the our new revamped website. com. Yeah. So what's it time for now? This week in petroleum history. So 1841, the rock drill jar patent was issued for something called percussion drilling you know what that was hmm. they took a steel rod that had a sharp point on it they dropped it down the drill stem mm. they took a mason jar full of nitroglycerin they lowered it by <laughs> rope i'm not making this stuff I know, up i know and then they dropped something heavy and the impact pushed the iron rod through the rock and it would drill a couple of feet at a time that's the way i'd want to drill i'd like to go do that right now then, i would pay to see that <laughs> Well, one of the problems is if they didn't have enough weight on what they dropped, it would throw the weight back up oh, the drill shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. A lot of people died doing that. 1850, Chicago Gaslight and Coke Company delivered its first commercial gas process from coal, and they lit the streets of Chicago. They had 80 miles of pipeline that installed for over 2,000 streetlights, and routinely one of the streetlights would blow up and catch on fire. So they had a team of firefighters that worked 24 hours a day to keep the streetlights and burning down the city. 1885, birth of the filling station gas pump. Sylvanius, oh, you're love this in Jordan. Sylvanius Freelove Browser was the inventor of the first gasoline pump to dispense gasoline into automobiles. And he actually first started putting them in grocery stores. That sounds like a cartoon. Name. Yeah. <laughs> then 1927, the Schlumberger brothers test the first electric logging tool. So Conrad and Marcial Schlumberger modified their surface system to operate vertically in a well, and the rest is history. Then 1939 on this date, United Producing Company drilled the first commercial oil well in Mississippi, drilled intensely southwest of Yazoo City. It produced at that time an amazing 235 barrels a day from a depth of 4,500 feet. Then finally, September 7th, 1923, California oil field was discovered at Dominic's Hills. Major Frederick Russell Birmingham discovered oil in Dominic's Hills in an unincorporated area of Los Angeles County. 
His first well produced a whopping 1,200 barrels a day from a depth of 4,000 feet. He was a sol- decorated soldier in both the U.S. and British armies, and is one of the few people that were decorated in both armies and was an all-wild wildcatter. How cool is that? Speaking of cool stuff, Paige mentioned it. Go check out OGN.com. This was not a website refresh. We totally rebuilt the website from the ground up. Thousands thousands of hours of app dev guys from all over the world to get this incredible website up and built. We have a new merch store. We have an app. Is that officially launched? Oh, it's officially launched. Okay, good. If you want to get a really cool shirt with me and Paige on the chest or with Jordan, (laughs) our coffee cup from Jordan, it's there. We're having more merch every single day. We also, people, especially your people that are talking to us about advertising, we have a new advertising portal. You can go to OGGN.com, buy advertising on which one of our podcasts that you would like. You control the pricing. You don't even have to talk to a salesperson. However, if you need some help, our experts are always here to help you. Then we've launched a new newsletter. I don't even like to use the word newsletter. This is our Sunday update. It's not like all the other newsletters, which are basically spammy scraping of news stories off the internet and trying to make you read it. And then they sell your addresses. We will never sell your email address. You can sign up for it on the new website. And we have behind the scenes look at OGGN. We have a little comedy stuff going on. We have real oil and gas data that helps you with the work week. And then we have suggested shows and a whole handful of coupons to save you money on all kinds of stuff. And then our old newsletter that used to come from Motor Point Oil and Gas Events newsletter has been revamped. And that's also available. So just go to OGGN.com. Up at the top, you'll see newsletter. You can sign up for both of those. Oh, and Mark, we may be answering some questions we don't normally answer on here in the Sunday update. Oh, yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) so, you know, audience, there's these questions that we don't ever answer for several reasons. Like, unfortunately, the one uh, read in the beginning of the poor guy looking for a job and we get other crazy stuff. Well, we decided to take some of those crazy questions that we don't answer on this show and we're going to answer them in the Sunday update. And we have answered the Sunday update. Yeah. You're going to really learn a lot about OGGN. Especially me. (laughs) A lot about you. (laughs) We we answer the fun questions. Yeah. Weekly rig count page, where are we? In the United States, we're at 632, up one. Canada is down five at 182. And internationally, we're down nine at 952. Yeah, my predictions for 24 is going to really cover why the rig count is going down, even though demand's going up. It's going to be an interesting next two years. What is also interesting is you want to sign up for that newsletter I talked about. You can also do it on LinkedIn. I told y'all, so just go to LinkedIn and just sign up for our stuff. It's just easier just that way. Good stuff. We've got yeah. stuff happening. Um, <laughs> also on the new website is a place for you to ask a question for First Friday Q&A. We had a little hiccup where we weren't getting the questions delivered because we rebuilt the website. That has now been fixed. Oopsie. Um, yeah. So by all means. Also, you know, I've had quite a few of y'all reach out to us and ask me questions on every social platform there is. Please don't do Facebook Messenger. I only checked that. I have, it, I have it muted. Yeah, I have the notifications turned off. Twitter's okay. LinkedIn's okay. Just don't do Facebook Messenger because it just I don't check it very often. If you're like myself or any of the experts like Mr. Jordan to come speak at your event, let us know. Happy to do your sales and marketing kickoff, your conference, your education for your clients, your gun show, whatever. We're happy to come out <laughs> and provide some fun. People love we do live podcasts. Y'all ready to get out of here? Yeah. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com. Oh,